From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What a time to graduate from nursing school, joining a frontline profession in a pandemic. That's scary. But then also, I would be proud to be able to to jump in that response. Today, a new nurse and an emergency room veteran sit down for a video chat. You know, as an ER nurse, you have to have thick skin and a soft heart, and you have to be able to do both well. Then COVID-19 antibody testing, crucial but flawed. And later, two words you don't hear together much, rural gentrification. Think Western communities like Aspen and Jackson, which have become playgrounds for the ultra-wealthy, flying in on private jets and clad in ranch wear. We're joined by a sociologist who studies this trend and its effects. His new book is called Billionaire Wilderness. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're rolling. Hello. Yes, hi. No. Okay, we're rolling. The other day, I connected with two nurses on video chat, one well into her career, the other just starting out. What possesses a new nurse to get into the profession now as the pandemic rages? And how are veteran nurses coping? Anna Gordon-Norby of Aurora just graduated this month from CU Anschutz. Meanwhile, Erin Kunkel is an emergency room nurse at Swedish Medical Center in Englewood. During her 16 years there, she has risen through the ranks, becoming a leader in her department. I got to sit back and listen as these two healthcare workers at very different stages of their careers asked each other questions. The first voice you'll hear is Anna's. What has been your greatest challenge clinically in nursing? Honestly, the biggest challenge clinically in my whole career has been right now, caring for these patients through COVID when we are turning visitors away at the door for their safety and ours. I think to look a family member in the face and tell them, you know, we're going to do the best we can to care for your loved one and then to take their phone number. I think that has been the absolute hardest because you want your loved ones with you. And then as the nurse, I want them to have their loved ones with them. So that has definitely been the hardest clinical situation is not having family members at the bedsides. I know that even back in early March, I encountered a lot of nurses really downplaying COVID, I guess maybe February, March, downplaying it or kind of rolling their eyes like, oh, it's just a flu. Uh, I know there are some nurses that I've worked with who I had to kind of convince of, you know, this is going to be a bigger deal. And so when did you realize that COVID was going to be anything like what it is now, especially being in a maybe a more hardened or tough role as an emergency room nurse. I remember reading my first article about it. Uh, One day I was picking up my kids from school, reading an article about the eye doctor in Wuhan who had recognized it. Um, And then he passed from it. And I did not think anything of it. I actually felt like this was something that probably would never make it to America. But as it did, and it started to hit in Seattle, all of us became pretty concerned pretty quickly as the data started to roll in. I spent a lot of time on forums on Reddit where at the beginning, I mean, they were memes saying like, oh, the public is panicking and here emergency room nurses are here like saying there's no big deal and being, and so I'm so glad that you work in a place that really instilled that like, no, this, 
whether this will be a big deal or not, we are treating it as a big deal. And thankfully, because yeah. we definitely took it very serious from the beginning and we had processes in place and, you know, we did joke that the process is changed by the hour, maybe by the minute, but it was always keeping the staff safe and the patient safe in the forefront of the decision-making. And so I have felt safe at work. And you still do, like you still have enough yeah. equipment and enough staff. And Yep. We have plenty of staff and plenty of PPE and a great process and supported by our company. And I think that makes a big difference in how a nurse could feel if you don't have what you need and you don't feel supported, it would be really easy to be very scared. One of my questions for you is what interested you the most in going to nursing school? Looking at your past, you have had a wide variety of different careers in healthcare, but what changed you to nursing? There's a couple different answers to that. If you asked my dad, or if I was answering that question in front of my dad, the answer would be, I want to be a nurse like my dad and like his mom. <laughs> um, but it was just a long line of friends who were going into nursing school. And I was always so impressed with them. And then I kind of hit a rough patch in life and was literally Wednesday morning driving a parks and recreation truck down a main street in Missoula, Montana, and just thought, well, wait a minute, if they can do it, I should do it. What unit do you want? Or do you have an idea of what you want to do coming out of school? I do. So as I graduate, I'm really interested in and looking at jobs in correctional nursing, working in a jail or prison. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it's such a disenfranchised or underrepresented community that, you know, my little social worky heartstrings are, are drawn to it. What are some of the emotions and thoughts that you're having as you're about to enter the field of nursing during a pandemic? The thought of joining correctional nursing right now during a pandemic, I guess it's terrifying um, because everyone is in such close quarters. And so that's, that's scary. But then also, yeah, I, I would be proud to be able to to jump in that, that response. I mean, I think that's really admirable to recognize that that's where your heart is calling you. And it takes such strength. I say the same, you know, of a couple other lines, like a hospice nurse and a peds nurse. Definitely takes somebody's special calling to put them in the right spot. What would you say is your greatest accomplishment in direct patient care? You know, I work at a stroke center and strokes are definitely my passion. They are what fuel my cup. They are the most exciting kind of patients for me to care for. They can be very critically ill at the same time. A couple of years ago, I remember taking care of a patient. They had come in for something completely unrelated, maybe belly pain. I'm not sure. And um, I had walked into the room and the patient had right-sided paralysis, was not able to speak. And I was able to notify our stroke team immediately. And we took this patient over to get pictures of their head. And then we were able to give the clot-busting drug, TPA, to help bust up that clot that they found in the brain. And this gentleman had made a complete and full recovery. He was married, had two young kids. So it was definitely wonderful to see like such quick reaction by recognizing his symptoms. He was able to make a full recovery back to his family. 
And I always say, like, making a connection early with your patients. It'll be interesting to see what kind of connections you make with the population you will serve. But, you know, if you can make a connection early with a patient, that really makes it a lot easier to care for them if you're caring for them like you would your family. You know, sometimes you just don't think you have time to go grab that blanket or you don't have time to get that one thing that they need, but you sure would make time if it was your mom. And so that's one thing that I've always said and tried to put in the back of my mind when it's a tough shift is like, how, what would I do if this was my family member? That's really good. I have a question that I would ask under normal circumstances. And I think with the current pandemic, it's even more so what advice you would have to a baby nurse entering the field right now? You know, currently a lot of nurses are coming from other floors as some units are closed or they're reallocating resources to where they need to be. Those nurses, and a lot of them are baby nurses, you know, they thought they were being hired on a certain floor and now they're being floated. So just being open and flexible to really meet the needs because wherever they put you is really, you are making a difference and you are helping care for patients wherever you are. You know, in the ER, it's so unpredictable of how many patients come in the door. You know, they don't make appointments. And um, so sometimes we have a lull and then sometimes we just get crushed and they didn't plan to all show up at the same time. And, you know, they all still are very concerned of whatever's wrong with them or what they think might be wrong with them. And so, you know, sometimes taking just three minutes to step outside and take a breath of fresh air will help recharge and make me be able to reprioritize what I need to get done and do it way more efficiently than if I just, you know, kept muddling through what I was doing. Take that self-care time, three minutes, maybe even 60 seconds, and think through of like, I am proud to be here. I am happy to be here. And together as a team, we can do this. I mean, that's probably a really difficult thing, especially when you are crushed in those times that you're talking about. I mean, just to be able to allow yourself to do that, that's... You know, they talk about nurses don't even have time to go to the bathroom on their shift. And it is true. But again, you got to make that a priority you're doing your patients a service by giving yourself that opportunity to care for yourself. Whatever patient room you're in, they don't know at all what's happening in the other room. And so, you know, some of them are very scared. Some of them are witnessing loss. Some of them come in and, you know, they're still upbeat and joking and happy. And you just got to read the situation and meet them right where they are. Right. Meet them where they are and not where you think they should be. Yep. Absolutely. I know we talk about that a lot in school, especially when it comes to pain, because, you know, oh, this person isn't really in pain. They're on their foot. They're texting on their phone. By putting that, your expectation of what their pain should look like means that you're really not providing them the care they need. You know, you touched on one thing about, you know, nurses having to be really resilient and having like a strong backbone. And one thing that comes to mind is, you know, as an ER nurse, you have to have thick skin and a soft heart and you have to be able to do both well. You know, patients who come in, they are not always happy or, you know, they're scared and it doesn't come across as kind. 
Um, so to be able to have thick skin, to be able to handle the emotions that are being tossed at you, but then to be able to have a soft heart and to be able to have that compassion for them and recognize that their actions or behavior are not at any way towards you, the nurse, but they're more towards, you know, a reflection of their scared or they're in pain or they're hurt. I think that is one way that really makes me successful. Erin, thank you so much for answering my questions. Makes me feel better that the things that you you recommend or the things that you focus on, they don't sound out of this world, right? They sound attainable. And um, <laughs> and it makes me feel a lot more confident. It really helps. Absolutely. I'm so glad we had this opportunity. You know, growing new nurses and mentoring them is one of my passions, one of my favorite things that I get to do. So I am really excited for you and truly the whole class of 2020, um, right? how exciting it is to be a nurse and come into healthcare in a moment like this. Erin Kunkel is a longtime nurse at Swedish Medical Center in Englewood, and Anna Gordon Norby of Aurora just graduated nursing school. They spoke on video chat about their profession in the midst of a pandemic. And we'll be right back with the promise and the pitfalls of antibody testing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is a nonprofit public service that depends on donations from the community. Many listeners and local businesses cannot support at this time, but if you can, your gift at this moment is critical. You can keep local journalism and non commercial music strong. And when you give now, the Colorado Health Foundation will match your generosity with a donation that will feed a family in need for a week. Learn more and give at CPR.org. Antibody testing has been touted as one key in the long-term fight against COVID-19. But there have been hiccups in the rollout and the accuracy of commercial test kits. Meanwhile, doctors and public health officials worry that these tests could lead to a false sense of immunity. Dr. Michelle Barron is an infectious disease specialist at CU Anschutz. And Dr. Barron, welcome back to the program. Thank you. And Kyle Brown is Deputy Director of Mass Testing for the Colorado COVID-19 Rapid Response Team. Hi, Kyle. Hi, thank you. Absolutely. So, Kyle, antibody tests are, of course, supposed to tell you if you've had the novel coronavirus. But just say a bit more about their weaknesses thus far. Sure. I think the two. it's important to think about the two types of testing uh, that's available uh, right now in the marketplace. You've got viral tests which are testing for the virus itself, yeah. uh, and tests test that test for antibodies or the body's response to the virus. Um, the body's response takes longer to show up. Um, and so for diagnostic purposes, the viral test is the most important. For antibody, antibody tests are an important tool that we have in our epidemiological toolbox. Um, but, and they tell us about where the virus has been and the extent to which it has spread, um, but they aren't as relevant for 
misdiagnosis in the short term and for helping us to contain the spread of the virus. And they haven't been very reliable even in the job of telling you whether you've had it. Is that is that true? I th- Yes. We've been struggling to understand um, exactly how antibody tests, which antibody tests are the most reliable. We've been very fortunate to be able to work with some of our research partners uh, at uh, CU Anschutz to evaluate the effectiveness of, of antibody tests. Uh, the state is very interested in working uh, with and, and using safe and effective tests um, because we have to be good stewards of our, uh, of our state dollars. Um, especially in a time of, of budgetary downturn. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to understand which tests are the most effective uh, and which ones might be useful um, in our sort of epidemiological and survey work. And Dr. Barron is actually involved in some of that evaluation. Dr. Barron, in, in just a moment, I'll bring you into the conversation. But Kyle, I want to make clear, for the record, is the state interested in antibody testing on any sort of mass scale in the near future? I would say that we're proceeding with caution, Ryan. Uh, it's it's an important tool that, that we know will uh, be able to tell us about the spread of the disease. But unlike viral testing, um, we have not set specific numerical targets. We're interested in using them, uh, you know, in the in the medium term. I would say to understand the spread of the virus, to look at. Uh, you know, the spread, particularly in populations such as healthcare workers or, or vulnerable populations, um, we, we don't necessarily um, have enough science at this point to understand uh, what a, a positive antibody test means for an individual patient. But we want to make sure that we're working with our research partners to push the science so that we can be using them. Um, to the best extent possible. So it sounds like the state's interest in antibody testing is, one, making sure that they're accurate, and two, when they are using them in some limited targeted populations. So Dr. Barron, as the COVID-19 pandemic was starting to flare up in mid-March, the FDA was under pressure to increase testing options, and the agency allowed dozens of different commercially made antibody test kits to hit the market. Many of the tests were unproven but the FDA had decided conditions were dire enough to warrant their release. What what have been the consequences of that decision, do you think? I think it obviously sparked a lot of interest in individuals wanting to have the testing. And then when they had the testing, um, not really being sure if the testing really reflected whether or not they had true exposure to the disease. Or a lot of these tests had cross-reactivity with other, the more common coronaviruses that cause the common cold and not COVID-19. And so then they were sitting with this result thinking, hey, I'm good, when maybe that's truly not the case. Mm. Or they may have had exposure to a different coronavirus, and the test couldn't distinguish between that. That's fascinating. So people were getting positives, and it was really just that they had had a more common cold? Well, it's possible. We don't know. That's the problem, is that the test is not reliable enough to distinguish between the two. And if you look at a lot of these results, if you see at the very bottom, it says that at the bottom, but it's probably not what someone, without knowing what that meant, would even probably acknowledge or realize that, hmm, that may have not meant I had coronavirus or COVID-19 specifically. Yeah, and we should be clear that it is still unknown exactly what sort of shield there is 
uh, in terms of your immune system when it comes to having had COVID-19? That, that is still a question, Dr. Barron. Yes, absolutely. It's a question. And I think it's something that's so important to emphasize because I think we were joking that people thought, well, I've got the golden ticket and I get to, I'm free. I can go to the factory and do whatever I want to do. And we just don't know that that's true. We don't know the significance if that means you're protected, if that means in the fall you may not be exposed again, if it comes back. There's just so many questions we still have. So, Kyle, if the state becomes aware of faulty or unreliable tests, is it your mission to throw those away or, you know, ferret them out and do something with it or what? Well, I think that we're we're standing on our guidance, which is that, you know, we're not recommending uh, antibody tests to be used in a diagnostic, in a diagnostic, uh, for diagnostic purposes at this point. Um, and I, know, I would also say that, you know, we know it's the role of the FDA um, to to evaluate, uh, authorize, and approve safe and effective tests, and that's really our interest as well. Um, so we're we're interested in working with our federal partners as well as our local research partners to understand which tests are the most safe and effective, and to deploy those where you can. When you've made these analyses, Dr. Barron, of tests, I mean. What's the percentage of the ones that seem to do a good job versus don't? Can you give us a sense? Sure. So our lab director actually has very high standards, obviously, and wants to make sure that it's the one that gives you the least amount of false positives or false negatives. And so the test that we're actually offering at present, mainly still to our employees before we decide we're going to use it more broadly, um, it has what we call a 99% sensitivity and specificity, which means and um, the likelihood of having a false positive or a false negative is less than 1%. Okay, so that's the gold standard, in other words, and and, and you, you are de- hope for. Yeah. you are developing at UC Health uh, a test as well. But my understanding is that you've surveyed the ones out there, and I I guess my question is, how unreliable have they been? I think, again, it sort of depends on what your standard is. So, you know, some people would say 97% is really still pretty darn good. Uh Um, But there's been a fair number where our lab director just said, you know, it's 95% or it's just it's below his 99% threshold. And he really felt like that should be the standard in terms of being able to use these tests and knowing still that we don't know what the results truly mean. Truly mean. Yeah. Okay. But you've seen some in the vicinity of 95%. Is that the lowest? I think the lowest is like maybe 93% in their hands. Okay. Now, of course, if I got a test back and had gotten 93% on it, I'd feel fairly proud of myself. But that is not uh, how these things work in the realm of um, disease tracking. Well, I I do want to note that the FDA last week laid out updated guidance, which now requires antibody test developers to demonstrate their products meet more rigid levels of accuracy. Uh, Does that give you hope, Kyle Brown? Yeah, we're we're excited that the the FDA is taking a a, a real interest in uh, antibody testing. Uh, they they have obviously a, a robust infrastructure to evaluate uh, testing uh, in a rigorous way, um, and so we're we're interested to see uh, you know what the results of those evaluations will continue to be, um, and and how they can inform our ability to deploy. Uh, this testing, um, you know, so that we can understand more about 
the, the epidemiological uh, spread of the virus. Dr. Barron, before we go, I mean, I know there are a lot of people out there hankering for antibody tests. I think the Washington Post put it really beautifully. They said no one wants to have coronavirus, but everyone wants to have had it. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. We, um, so if, if there's someone out there who's clamoring for an antibody test and they go to their doctor and maybe they get one or they find one commercially available, what caveats would you put on it before we go? Um, that I would say that if it's positive, again, that means that you were probably exposed. I would make sure that you ask which test was done so that you know whether there's the potential for that cross-reactivity with other common coronaviruses. And then know, unfortunately, at this point in time, that we would tell you that in terms of your behavior, in terms of following the rules right now, social distancing or being able to go back to work, everything that we're saying still applies, and that test would not impact that decision. You are not not invincible. That's what Dr. Barron is telling you. Thanks <laughs> thanks to both of you for being with us. Dr. Michelle Barron, Director of Infe- Infection Control and Prevention at UC Health, University of Colorado Hospital, and Kyle Brown, Deputy Director of Mass Testing for the Colorado COVID-19 Rapid Response Team. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the clearest picture yet of just how the pandemic has impacted the state's economy. I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News. There is a stage for seniors to walk across this year. You're invited to CPR Classical's graduation celebration, Saturday at 2, when we honor graduates across Colorado. Send your senior photos for us to share online. Email graduation at cpr.org. And join me, Ray White, this Saturday at 2 for a musical graduation celebration on CPR Classical. Colorado got a grim look at its financial future Tuesday. State economists presented their quarterly forecast, and it's clear that public budgets are going to be hurting for a long time. CPR's Andy Kenny covers state finances, and I asked him, out of all the predictions economists made, did a particular number stand out? There were so many, but $3.3 billion. That's how much lawmakers expect that they need to cut from next year's state budget compared to the current budget. And that's about a quarter of their discretionary spending, the money that they get to make decisions about. And for perspective, that's about how much the state spends to keep running the uh, Transportation and Corrections Department every year. My goodness. I mean, it seems obvious that shutting down the economy would hurt the state's finances. But uh, break this down a bit more. How did they come up with that $3.3 billion estimate? Well, it's kind of based on all the ways that the government is dependent on the economy. One of the biggest factors is that they're expecting unemployment in Colorado could hit about 10%. And that means a lot fewer people earning money and spending money, less income tax, less sales tax. Businesses are closed as well, obviously. Uh, And then there's, you know, lots of other little sources as well. The oil and gas sector is totally cratered. And that means that there's practically no taxes from those operations coming in. And all those different sources of income, they're getting hit at the same time. I mean, it's clear that the tail on this is quite long. But like, how long do state economists think this will go on? Years is the scale that they're talking about right now. You know, there's a couple of different economic forecasts that the government has put out. And the general expectation is that the damage is already hitting this year. Uh, The next fiscal year, which starts in July, will be even worse in terms of declines in revenue, declines in activities. 
And perhaps there could be kind of a bounce back in the 2021-2022 fiscal year. But even then, they're not expecting that it will recover even to the levels that we had last year. So we could be having a hangover from this for many years to come. The state has reserves, right? I mean, are they helping at all? Yes. So the state is required to hold on to some reserves. And Governor Polis and lawmakers were working on building up those reserves. They're currently burning through them at a rapid pace. They could either exhaust those or severely deplete them by the end of this fiscal year, which is, again, just six weeks from now. And that will put the legislature in an even bigger hole next year because they will have to rebuild the reserves, legally speaking, even as they try to catch up with all the money they've also lost. How will lawmakers close this hole? That is the big question. They have spent the last couple weeks, some of the state's top lawmakers, talking about cuts here and cuts there, repealing new laws, uh, trying to freeze spending where they can. They've managed to come up with about $700 million in the Joint Budget Committee of suggested spending cuts. The governor's office has come up with another close to $300 million in cuts for this year. But when the legislature reconvenes in a matter of weeks, they will be looking at plans for for much more than that, for billions, rather than just the hundreds of millions that they've already cut. Is there any talk at all about new revenues? Uh, I mean, this is obviously a time when lots of Coloradans are hurting, so that may be completely uh, out of the cards. Yes, lawmakers, for the most part, are talking about cuts and cuts and cuts, but some advocacy groups say that they need to get out of that mindset. Uh, For one thing, voters in November may get a chance to decide on a progressive income tax that would raise taxes on the highest earners and drop them on other earners, which could provide uh, some new revenue for the state. It's also possible for lawmakers to discuss uh, instituting a a tax hike on their own, but that would require really broad agreement among the legislators, which is going to be a really difficult thing to achieve. Andy, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny talking about what the pandemic is expected to do to the state budget. The uber rich flock to beautiful places throughout the Mountain West and carve out a very particular lifestyle, like at the Yellowstone Club in Montana, which has a private ski area for its homeowner members. The club itself is as big as Beaver Creek with 2,200 acres of skiable terrain. I'd literally ski right out the door and you get all the services that would be in a five-star resort. You never have to leave. No other experience like it in the world. This place is, it's magical. Clips there from a marketing video. The ultra-wealthy's quest to find solace in nature and even their desire to protect it have radically changed the places they've settled a rural gentrification mixing private jets and cowboy boots. Denver author and Yale sociology professor Justin Farrell explores their world and that of the low-wage workers around them in his new book, Billionaire Wilderness, The Ultra-Wealthy and the Remaking of the American West. And Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. Uh, Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Describe what a home might look like for folks in Jackson Hole or Aspen or, you know, any number of exclusive Mountain West communities. And and maybe give us some insight into what those homes tell us about the headspace of the people who live in them. Sure. 
Yeah, so uh, much of the research for the book took place in homes like that. And so, you know, um, I would walk into these homes, you know, hoping to, to probe their motivations, their values, kind of how they perceive themselves. And you might imagine, as you might imagine, you know, these these Western mansions were massive in some cases. And, and that wasn't so surprising. Um, for me, what was so interesting was not just the size, but um, how they were built to first, you know, emulate nature with the natural materials, the, the local stones, wildlife art, um, sculptures, just to really emulate a wild setting. Um, but in addition to that, uh, they would often emulate this romantic rural utopia. You know, you mentioned cowboy boots. So, you know, I would walk inside, I would see these old cowboy boots, I would see the antique saddles um, that cost, you know, thousands of dollars. And in the opening pages of the book, I describe seeing in the entryway at this environmental fundraiser I attended of an impoverished uh, Navajo girl um, standing there in the entryway. Um, and so it was a really interesting setting to kind of sit down and do these interviews in their living rooms in this rustic-looking decor and these huge acrylic paintings of cowboys around a campfire or maybe herding cattle, you know, through the Rockies. Um, but at the same time, I'm doing these interviews, you know, in the room over in the kitchen is the help you know, preparing food on most likely would be a Viking range. And so it was a fascinating experience, especially when I did the interviews in these homes, as you mentioned. I mean, I think what I hear you saying is that the West gets fetishized and we all do that to some extent, right? I mean, I own a pair of cowboy boots and, uh, you know, it's very likely that someone listening has some piece of Western art in their home. Uh, Why does it stick out to you so strongly in this environment, do you think? I, I, in the book, I talk about how um, folks, especially the ultra wealthy, um, use use nature and re- use this romanticized version of the West to really um, solve these existential dilemmas they face as as uber rich people, hmm. and that can kind of manifest itself in two ways. You know, you may have economically, you you face this dilemma. You've made all this money. How best do you enjoy it and share it and protect it? Um, but more interestingly for me in the book was this, the social dilemmas they face about how do you wrestle with, you know, and respond to these, these social stigmas of being rich and this accusations that you're not an authentic person or that, um, they, that create these anxieties. And the, the rural Western culture, you know, it's always meant a great deal to, uh, you know, American uh, history. And, and it's always had this kind of elevated place, especially for pe- folks in the East who kind of view it as this romantic area where they, um, you know, can come either live out these, these myths. Um, but it did allow the ultra wealthy, um, to become more authentic people by, by putting to use, as I call it, these, this culture, you know, and using this blend of nature and this blend of, of rural culture and sometimes even rural poverty to create these new versions of themselves that they view as more authentic. Yeah, it's not just cowboy boots. It's also the interactions that they have with locals, with the the, the person in their kitchen who's doing the cooking. Um, you find that there is something about those relationships, dimensions of which can be exploit, exploitative, um, that are a part of this whole culture. Yeah, and... You know, as I set out on the research and over the course of these five years, this 
kept coming up over and over again and again. And I would, you know, come home from an interview and talk to my wife about it. And I'd talk about how, you know, these folks keep talking about how they want to become or that they have become a quote, normal person. And so, you know, I, I found ultimately that they use this culture and, the, and sometimes even use rural people in the West and especially lower income people as a vehicle for their own personal transformation again. And, you know, the, but the idea of, of, the, of the person that they use is often this kind of imagined Westerner that lives in kinship with nature and they're really free from all the snares of, of wealth and power that you might see on Wall Street or in Silicon Valley. And they just, you know, they live kind of one with nature and there's sort of this noble life and this frontier authenticity that they have. Um, and so, for example, I tell the story of a guy uh, named John, who I interviewed, who was an oil and gas CEO, and he made, you know, tens of millions of dollars. But since moving to the, the Rocky Mountain West, he's become passionate about, you know, becoming a normal person and, and wearing Wranglers and cowboy boots and tells me story after story about um, all of his normal working class friends. And so, you know, those, the book is full of stories like that. And it really become a main, became a main theme in the book, you know, to my surprise. Um, but there is a darker side to all of that the, as well. Indeed, which I want to explore with you because the gap between the haves and the have-nots is really incredible in Teton County, which you describe as the wealthiest place in the United States. That wealth is largely from financial investments. It's not wages or salary, and that explains some of the gap. And it's in Teton County, Wyoming, where you set this book. But of course, this is reflective of so many rarefied Western towns. Um, You know, I think it's worth mentioning that Teton County, for instance, is also a magnet for the wealthy because of the taxes or the lack thereof. Yeah, it's really a tax haven. And I mean, you see the the flood of wealth across the Rocky Mountain West, especially ultra wealth. And the the population of ultra wealthy people in the U.S. is growing year by year. Um, Some estimates put it at about 100,000 um, people, um, but yeah, you're right. Um, tax the tax haven that is Wyoming and that is Teton County. Um, you know, has encouraged folks to move there. Um, and so, the top to give you a sense of things, the top one percent there earn an average income of 28 million a year, um, and per capita income is is the highest in the nation. Um, I, I think it's about sixty thousand uh, dollars higher than the second best, which would or best, you know, would be Manhattan. Um, and so, it, it, you know, it's really staggering. And, and that was kind of my whole you know, idea for this book was ultra wealth in the West is this, this sleeping giant and that I think has been mostly ignored by observers. And I think it's time we, we pay more attention to it. Now, with that much money in a particular county or a particular community in the West, you'd think, well, there's probably a lot of philanthropy going on that helps the workers in that community. Um, because you, you do find a lot of rural poverty in these places, and you find deep social ills, uh, addiction among them. But you also find that the charity tends to go towards the arts and towards environmental causes that don't necessarily improve life for locals. Just say a bit more about that. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, when folks move out west, um, they many become concerned about the environment. 
and they they do give generously of their time and money to local causes. Mm-hmm. And I knew that going in, but I, I dug into the data a little bit and found that you know even environmental philanthropy is not always what it seemed. Oftentimes, um, they would be leveraging nature for their own benefit, whether that's um, protecting their own view shed or, you know, uh, land conservation itself can be a, a lucrative way to claim a, a massive tax break, you know, under the banner of altruism. And I'm all for conservation, but I really try to point out the the dynamics and the complexities and even some of the underbelly of all of this. And so, so the money that they're giving is not going to the organizations who really need it, in my view to make this, you know, a functioning community and, and to really achieve the type of community that the ultra wealthy romanticize and that they think exists in some places in the West, you know, that's small town character, you know, everybody gets along, you know, we look out for one another. Well, if that were true, you know, in my view, the, the numbers would look a little differently. Justin, I just want to note that the ultra wealthy, these are often titans of industry and, and industries by the way, that may be very environmentally exploitative. And then you contrast that with their mountain getaway life. Um, just say a few words about that for me. Yeah, so I, I have a concept in the book I call connoisseur conservation, which, you know, for example, one media executive told me that nature is his you know, new fine wine. And they kind of go on and on about how much they love being out in nature, how especially in you know places like Colorado or places like Teton County where you have Grand Teton National Park, Yellowstone National Park. It's, in some um, folks' view, it would be the best of the best, almost like, you know, again, this fine wine or art. But the darker side of all of this, as you kind of hinted at, was this escaping to this pristine nature for, you know, whether it's for your own therapeutic remedy, um, you know, it it overlooks the vast natural resources it takes to build and sustain these massive homes in, in what are often precious ecosystems. And on top of that, um, the love for nature that many of these folks espouse and they give money to these organizations is that it's paid for with money that is earned in industries that have caused climate change, that have contributed greatly to um, global ecological ruin. You know, And, and so I um, I do not really point individual fingers in the book. I try to kind of um, focus on the general patterns and focus on policies that might help with all this. But there are certain ironies and, and really overt hypocrisies as well relative to, um, you know, if you run an oil and gas company and now you're <clears throat> running the local environmental organization in your community. Um, and that goes the same for financial investors in terms of, you know, what were they investing in and how did that impact the environment as well? We talked about the kind of charity, the kind of philanthropy that happens in communities like Aspen and like Teton County, that much of it is directed towards the arts and to environmental causes. And it's interesting because the more um, that land is set aside, the more, as, as you say, view sheds are protected especially in parts of the country where the vast majority of land is already publicly held, that just makes the existing developable land more precious. And it makes home ownership, for instance, or property ownership even more rarefied. Uh, so there's a tension there between um, like livability and environmentalism, isn't there? That's right. 
So in this particular county, 97% of land is federally owned. So there's 3% left, and um, some of that's been developed, and then much, the re- much of the rest is put under easement. And so there is almost literally nowhere to build. And so, it, you know, as you might imagine, <clears throat> and you see these dynamics all around the West, and even in cities, you know, like here in Denver, Salt Lake, Seattle, there's just skyrocketing home values and home prices. And so it becomes almost impossible for even middle-class folks to work there. You know, a couple of doctors and lawyers I interviewed consider themselves middle-class. And, um, but then there was also the working poor and the low-income folks that I interviewed. And, you know, for example, one woman um, named Carmita, she's a nanny for an ultra-wealthy family, and she's, she's saved enough to, to um, rent a small trailer, and she shares it with another family. But she's working two jobs um, just to pay for this small trailer. And, and she loves living in the community, but it's really becoming almost impossible um, to make it work. And many of the f- people and her friends and even some family members have had to move as far as 45 to 50 miles outside of town. Um, and some of them even commute over this dangerous mountain mountain pass every day just to get to work. And so when we step back and look at, you know, this old time vision of community, um, the myth is there, but the, the reality is certainly not. And we know those long commutes exist all throughout Colorado as well. I think of the communities serving Vail, serving Aspen. And I, I do want to acknowledge uh, in Aspen especially that there has been a great emphasis on on workforce housing as well. But, you know, I think the, the point there is if you're spending all your time working and commuting to work and then presumably sleeping because you've worked your tushy off, uh, you're not enjoying the nature that drew the ultra-wealthy to your backyard um, and which they're trying so desperately to preserve. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. And um, I, I have this survey as well and present some results from the survey that was conducted in the community. And, and the number one thing was for folks who the working poor was they wish they had more time to go out in nature, and but they also wish they had more time to become involved in local politics and to educate themselves about, you know, how can we turn things around? How can we maybe move toward um, what Aspen has done and maybe some other communities have done in terms of prioritizing workforce housing? And so time is, is the number one thing. And on the flip side, many of the ultra-wealthy folks who are there, they may still be, you know, running their financial investment business. Um, you know, they can do it from um, using the Internet and on the phone and they have all sorts of time. And so um, they've had more they have more time than they've ever had in some ways. And so there's really a, a time gap um, in addition to the wealth gap. We have just a few minutes left. And I know that you recently wrote a piece for The New York Times about how the wealthy are fleeing to their Mountain West homes to try to escape the pandemic. Uh, how, are, how are locals responding to that? Locals were scared, you know, especially early on. And, um, you know, leaders were saying, you know, stay home. We know you have a second or third home here. Please don't come. Our, you know, our, our health uh, care cannot sustain that. It cannot have an influx of, of folks, especially coming from, you know, these COVID hotspots. And so, yeah, I wrote about, um, for example, one um, doctor told me that an, an ultra-wealthy person um, flew in a private ventilator because the, the local hospital there only had a handful. Um, and again, it's not to, to point fingers at certain individuals or others. And um, 
I do think the the pandemic and this crisis lays bare many of the deeper problems, you know, about the wealth gap. And um, and I think we're seeing that, and it's really kind of showing and exacerbating the underlying issues in our country, and and also in the West. And in that New York Times piece, I, I wrote about how you know they're they're flocking to these areas in the West, even though they're they're told to stay home and you know, they can fly in, in private jets and those were still landing because the West is, it can just be used when it's, con- when it's convenient. Oftentimes it's, it's not really seen as a real place um, with, with real people, with real problems, but as in this case, a place to hide out, even if, you know, it, it does endanger um, these local communities. We have less than a minute. Is it your hope that the ultra-wealthy will read this book and modify their behavior accordingly? I mean, is that the hope? Uh, it's actually, it's not. My hope is that, um, I I wrote it for the general public and my aim of the book was really to get evidence-based, uh, research in the hands of, of decision makers. And I really try my best in the book to kind of present what's going on dispassionately. And, um, I do, you know, I've received all sorts of different emails from folks, but, but my audience really is the general public. Um, I've had, you know, ultra wealthy people reach out and say they've really enjoyed it um, and it opened their eyes. But um, yeah. That is Yale sociology professor Justin Farrell of Denver. His new book is Billionaire Wilderness, the ultra wealthy and the remaking of the American West. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.